So good to be in beautiful England in May. Isn't it glorious? We were up uh, in Newcastle with our dear friends, um, Cornerstone. And uh, Cornerstone are in a brand new building that they've been given. It was just packed to the rafters. And Newcastle was just showing off. Uh, I think Newcastle gets a bad rap. It's a great city, the north. It's amazing. But I woke up this morning... Um, and peered out my window. We've got kind of an Airbnb that's back from the beach. You kind of, kind of glimpse the amazing Bournemouth coastline, not an ounce of entitlement there, and, uh, and woke up to just a glorious Bournemouth sunrise over the city and the water. Uh, it was absolutely stunning. So it's so good to be in England. Uh, last night, after the richness of the session, uh, Brian and Rachel and Ronald and I went back to our shared B&B. We were sitting on the balcony and kind of looking out over the beautiful twinkling lights of the city and eating kind of the best of British uh, pickled onions <laughs> and uh, salt and vinegar chips and uh, Cadbury's chocolate-covered Turkish delight. Amen? And it was just beautiful, man. We were watching the guys stumbling out of the pub, lamenting after Manchester City had lost and it was beautiful. As an Arsenal supporter, it was beautiful. And there was this kind of pregnant pause in this amazing moment. Four of us sat there, and Brian Barr turned to us and just said, I love yous. And we went, Brian, I love yous. It kind of, he's Texan. It sounded a little bit like New York, Long Island. I love yous. And we're like, Brian, you're getting so tender. It's like, this is amazing. Like, so sentimental. He was like, no, I love views. And we're like, oh, man. So, so disappointing. You thought we were having an, a moment. Anyway, I want to talk to you from the Psalms about emotional fluency. And uh, Brian is growing in emotional fluency. But uh, what does it mean to be an emotionally healthy people? Is that on God's agenda for us? And what do the Psalms have to teach us uh, about that? You know, when Jesus asked the haunting words, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? He certainly was referring to money and fame, but actually it includes mission. Sometimes in the best of ways, we can say, Lord, we want to take the world for Jesus. We want to be onward. We want to be forwards. But if we forfeit our soul doing it, it's unprofitable. And then he goes on to say, there's, there's nothing more precious than the soul. And that uh, Matthew 11 text that Rig preached from last night. He promises to give us rest for our souls. And so we are going to read Psalm 42, and it's a psalm of the soul. And, you know, in the last two or three years, there's, there's been a sense of, an intuitive sense of something that's going on that I couldn't articulate until I found it in this psalm. And it brought me great hope and encouragement because the Psalms offer us sacred solidarity with God's people. 
Satan would love to make us feel like we are freaks in what we feel in our soul. But what we find is the extremes of all sorts of emotions in the Psalms, and we find sacred solidarity. And it's this, I'm going to read it now, that very often we need to pour out our souls before they can be filled. We need to empty ourselves before they can be filled. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep, Calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands a steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. So this psalm was written by the sons of Korah, who were paid musicians in David's tabernacle. And so they were like staff worship leaders. And the, the psalm contains much water imagery. It, it begins with a deer panting for streams of living water and then uses the imagery of waves and breakers crashing over. It lands with this waterfall of God's steadfast love. And, and anyone who was a Christian during the 80s and 90s would have sung ad nauseum, that ad, as the deer pants for streams of living water, you know. Uh, since I started hunting a little bit, I just always go, like, I just get that trigger finger, you know, as the deer. <laughs> Will someone shoot that flipping be- deer, you know? But um, the reason we sang that so much was that it resonates so deeply with us. It has a universal theme of, of longing for the refreshing streams of God's presence. And we resonate with that longing, but there's a paradox here that I want us to see, that in the first verse, he's panting for streams of living water. He's thirsty. He's dying of thirst. And yet in verse 4, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. Well, what's going on? Are you empty or are you full or both? Or are you that thirsty because you're just full of 
other things. That's the paradox I want us to plumb this morning. That this son of Korah seemed to be so full of other stuff that it caused an emptiness and a distance from God's presence. You know what it's like. You can stuff yourself full of popcorn. You're full, but it makes you incredibly thirsty. And that's something of what he is describing in this psalm. It's what I call the saturated soul. He is like a waterlogged sponge. He's so full of brackish water, of heavy waterlogged emotion, that he's empty, that he's thirsty. In the 80s and 90s, my generation wore burnout like a badge of honor. We were redlining on reserve. We were doing tech startups in our parents' garage because Silicon Valley was making millions, and we wore burnout like a badge of honor. Everyone was on Prozac, and we were just pushing the midnight oil. And it's been interesting today, of course people burn out, of course there's depletion, but, but burnout is not the buzzword that it was in the 80s and the 90s. People are far more weighed down than burnt out. And why is that? Well, I think they, they saturated because of the 24-hour news cycle. Clickbait sells. And we have access to this news all over the world, and our souls are actually not designed to be able to care for it all. And so we watch another tragedy, and we just go, I, I should care, but I don't. And then that numbness, you feel bad, which is worse than the feeling of numbness. We are saturated. We are saturated from a slew of mile-wide, inch-deep social media relationships that don't actually give us the deep soul intimacy that we crave. We are saturated because we tend to escape our pain through crazy, banal entertainment like watching TikTok dances and watching another person fry another steak. That, that's, that's my escape. I have these reels. I just watch people fry meat. It's like, what's it? Is it, it's awesome, you know? Just for that moment, that, that hit of pleasure. It's like, oh, another way to do a ribeye. That, uh, that book from the 90s, We Are Entertaining Ourselves to Death, was prophetic. We as leaders are so full of other people's fear and frustration and hopes and disappointment and joy and anger. There's almost, there's no room for anything else. Our souls are a little bit like a child's painting that has so many bright colors on it that it's just gone a dull gray. There's a numbness. My friend Donnie talks about, well, you know, you get 
long COVID where you lose your sense of taste and smell. He's like, I feel like my soul has got long COVID. Just lost my ability to be really happy or really sad. It's just a, 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 a blah. That's something of what the son of Korah is experiencing. We know after a, a season of calorie overload, we do a body detox. We drink lots of water and we eat high fiber stuff and celery sticks, etc. Because we realize like we, we, we've, we've got to empty ourselves. What, what would it look like if the people of God took a soul detox as seriously? What would it look like if they poured out their souls in order to be filled again? Enter the Psalms. The Psalms are not just the, the songbook of God's people. The, the, the Psalms are God's guidebook to emotional health. They, they don't provide a formula. The Psalms are not formulaic. But, but the Psalms offer a sacred rhythm of formation. And I want to walk you through the sacred rhythm of formation. And I trust that it will help you in the moment, but I'm, 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 I'm hoping it will be a tool that helps you generally moving forward to empty your soul that it might be filled again. I love what John Calvin said about the Psalms. The Psalms display the intricate anatomy of all parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Beautiful, isn't it? So what do we see in terms of this son of Korah's formation of emptying himself that he might be filled again? Well, firstly, we see that that he pours out his soul. These things I remember, verse 4, as I, I pour out my soul. Now remember, these were, these were full-time musicians. And yet this guy is remembering a time when he was at the front of the procession, leading the great throng. He's, he's full of actually regret, maybe guilt, maybe shame. I mean, he is pouring out his soul in confession. This is a backslidden worship leader. I remember those days when I was at the, the front of the procession leading the great throng and now, God, I am separated from your presence. I don't know if David would have been really happy about this, but he's pouring out his soul in, in confession. I mean, he's got the look. He's probably still got the Gibson J45 and the skinny jeans and the Maverick City cap and all that stuff, you know. But he's like dragging his Nike Air Force 1s to the temple. You know, it's like he's, he's, he's at the back. He's at the back. He's no longer at the front. And he is pouring out his soul in confession that there is a big, gaping, yawning gap between his ministerial responsibility and his spiritual reality. How many of us find ourselves in that gap? And are we faking it? We're pouring out our soul in reality. You know, ministry can do that to us. There's a British series called Call the Midwife. And in it, there's a, a stunning moment where one senior nurse talks to the other one. And she says, the world is full of fragile people. When we try to mend them, it can break us. Something of that in the son of Korah. Anyone here relate? 
Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, talks about how psalms can be categorized in kind of three categories. The one is psalms of orientation, where everything is right with the world. You feel blessed by God and blessed by His people and close to Him, and there are those psalms. And then there are psalms of disorientation where nothing seems to make sense and you're in turmoil and you're in doubt and God seems to have forgotten you and people, the people of God have wounded you. And then there are psalms of reorientation where the psalmist says, well, despite all that, God, this is who you are. And he says that Psalm 42 is a psalm of disorientation. It starts with him acknowledging disorientation, turmoil, being downcast. And then he begins to reorientate himself around the unchanging truth of God. And he expresses this disorientation by phrases like, My soul is in turmoil. All your waves and breakers have crashed over me. It's the biblical term... Pouring out your soul, the biblical term is lament. He is lamenting. Have you ever been caught under a wave or a breaker and it just holds you under and you're fighting for the surface and as you're coming up, another one comes and your lungs are bursting and your nasal passages are stinging and you don't know which way is up and which way is down. That is his soul. Can anyone relate? I was so blessed by Josh leading that incredible lament with joy. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. It's all right. Josh has lost both his parents in the last year. And we've watched this man lament, pour out his soul, but then reorientate himself around the unchanging nature of God. But I want to I plead with you, don't run past lament. The Psalms give us permission to sit in lament. A full third of the Psalms are laments. And as charismatics, we're not good at that stuff. We feel like it's not full of faith enough. But actually, lament is not a destination. It's a layover towards the destination of joy. But if we skip the, the layover, we get to a place where we're faking it. Kathy Keller talks about that. She, she says, ministry often makes you a worse Christian. We think, oh, it's going to make me a better Christian. She says, often it makes you a worse Christian because there's such pressure to look like you've got it together. And lament is such a key to not getting locked in faking it, to not getting locked in nostalgia. That's the other danger of not pouring out our soul, is that we get locked in our glory days. We get freeze-framed there. But lament actually keeps us moving forward. And then thirdly, we, not thirdly, secondly, we see that He begins to listen to his soul. Before we get there, I, I, I just want to double-click a little bit on, on our resistance to not just lament, but our resistance even to emotional fluency. Because some of us come from really stoic cultures, stiff upper lip cultures. I'm South African. It's pretty stoic. 
Some of us come from church traditions where it's like, man, don't, don't get into all those emotional feeling stuff. It's, it's good doctrine. Just hold fast to good doctrine. That'll be enough. And I want to say good doctrine is absolutely paramount. But I've just been around church for long enough to meet a lot of people with great doctrine who are really grumpy and angry. It's just not the silver bullet. It's, it's not enough. And good doctrine is, is what we hold as we process our souls. It what, it's, it's what keeps us being slaves to our emotions. Because emotions are a wicked master. But they are a wonderful servant. And we need to learn to actually listen to our souls. Not slavishly, but give attention to them. Pete Schizero, many of you will know him. Says emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Pouring out your soul is not just for worship leaders and, and poets and progressives, it's for pastors and theologians and plumbers and homeschool moms and college students. It's for everyone who says, Jesus, you're not just the Savior. From my sins, you are also the shepherd of my soul. That's on offer for me, Jesus. So he begins to listen to his soul. Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you cast down? Twice he asks. Why are you in turmoil within me? The, the, the curiously beautiful thing about the psalm is that he doesn't just describe how he's feeling. He wants to know why. He's attentive. He's, he's investigating his soul. And, and, and the description of having a downcast soul is, is really significant here. The, the, the word downcast is the Hebrew word shachat, which means a range of things. It, it means to be spiritually dry, to be emotionally heavy, gloominess, and then extends all the way across to complete emotional collapse and utter despair. I just want to say, some of us feel melancholy and gloomy at times. Others are locked into clinical and chemical depression and anxiety, suffering from trauma, and the Psalms do not offer an easy remedy. They offer hope. But I want to say, if you are there, hear the sacred solidarity of the Psalms here. You are not alone. You are not a freak. But he's asking why. He's, he's asking what, what I call, the, what's the thing behind the thing? It's one thing that I'm, I'm in turmoil or I'm downcast, but what's the source of it? What's, what's causing it? And, and to be emotionally healthy, we have to ask, what is the thing behind the thing? And it seems like there's two things behind the thing. The one is, he is isolated from the people of God. He says, from Mount Mizar, I call. Mount Mizar is very far from Jerusalem. It's right on the outskirts of Israel. Somehow he's not just far from the presence of God, he's far from the people of God. We're not told why. But we have seen in the last two years that people who isolate themselves suffer all kinds of malady of the soul. And this is a warning that there's no ongoing restoration of the soul apart from the people of God. 
But there's a second thing behind the thing, and that is wounds. Wounds. Verse 9, he says, Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. This man is wounded. And it gives us a category for why our souls often get downcast. It's not always about sin that needs repenting of. Now, sin and repentance and receiving forgiveness is at the heart of the healing of the soul. Don't get me wrong. But it's not the only category that we are given. Because sometimes we are downcast not because of our own sin, but because the sin of others against us. With a deadly wound. A wound from what? From arrows? From spears? No, from words. They taunt me. Beloved, don't buy into the lie that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never harm me. Words wound. Most of you, all of you, carry wounds from the last season. And you know, wounds are not healed immediately, generally. If you sin, you repent, and there is immediate forgiveness. But a wound, it's like, let me give, give the example. Repenting of sin is like realizing you've got cancer, and you need that thing cut out. It's immediate. But a wound, think of a burn wound. You, you don't cut that out. You need the slow, gradual application of the self of the Spirit of God and grace and releasing people and receiving God's healing. Darren Patrick, a pastor who tragically took his life, gave a, a, it was actually his last message before that, but he, he said something powerful. He said this, we often get sin and wounds confused. Sins are rebellious places in our hearts that need repenting. Wounds are tender places in our hearts that need healing. You cannot repent of wounds, and you cannot go to therapy for sins. There's a time to repent of sins. But when you're wounded, it's a different remedy. beautiful thing is that the healer is the same. We bring our wounds to the wounded one. Christ, the wounded healer. Isaiah 53 tells us he has borne not only our sins, but our wounds and our sorrows. Surely, says, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Do you realize in the atonement is the carrying of grief and sorrow? And also the atonement of sin. It says, He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds we are healed. Beautiful poem in 1990 by Edward Shalito. It described Jesus as the unique wounded healer among all the other gods. He said, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. 
They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Bring your wounds to the wounded healer. Brunel and I were working with a couple, lead a church in our network, and this man had been wounded deeply by his best friend. And he realized that he'd been carrying this wound for about a year, and it was actually at the root of his downcast soul. And Renelle and I were having some kind of repeated Zooms with them over a couple of months, and they had their Good Friday service. And he'd been doing hard soul work, just bringing his wounds to Jesus. And they had a Good Friday where they did kind of the stations of the cross. And he Zoomed us. They Zoomed us the week after, and he said, man, I got through the stations of the cross, and especially that station where Judas had betrayed Jesus. And he said, in a moment... The wounds of Jesus lifted something off me. And I came out the other side. I turned to my wife and said, I'm free. It's, it's lifted. I'm free. Now, he'd done hard soul work before, but we still can know the healing in a moment of our wounds, deep wounds from the wounded one. Thirdly, he speaks to his soul. I love this. It's probably my favorite part. Why are you downcast on my soul? Put your hope in God. Why are you so downcast, my soul? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. Can you see this push me, pull you off? He's asking, he's questioning what's the thing, that, the thing behind the thing, and then he's, he's speaking to his soul. He's addressing it. Paul Tripp says this, no one is more influential in your life than you because no one talks to you more than you. People say, oh, talking to yourself, that's the first sign of madness. I want to say, it can be, but self-talk, <laughs> self-talk is one of the first signs of emotional health. We pour out our soul, we listen to our soul, but we're not slavishly listening to our soul. We're saying, I'm acknowledging you, my soul, and now I'm going to speak to you, my soul. Because we realize that we are broken in our sinful human condition, our emotions are fickle. And our culture says, be true to your soul. Be true to yourself. Come on, you've got to act out how you're feeling. I just want to say, to which self should I be true? Because I'm a different self every day. I'm a bundle of paradoxes. How about you? If I'm just going to be true to that self and that self and that self, I'm going to be crazy all over the map. There's got to be a higher sense of what I am listening to ultimately. And this psalmist knows it. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Now we spend some time talking about the importance of listening, but man, he doesn't leave it there. We've taught our kids, you are the boss of your feelings. You don't deny them. You don't bury them. But you are the boss of your feelings. One of my favorite quotes about this is Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. 
American hero, Presbyterian minister, but, but, but kind of a kid's TV guy. And he would say this, feelings to kids are both mentionable and manageable. I want to say that's the gospel. <laughs> Mention your feelings. And then through the word of God and the spirit of God and the community, manage them. It's possible. This is not faking it until you make it, beloved. Far from it. It's simply honoring the biblical truth, the unchanging anchor of our souls above the fickle, fickle realities of who I am, tossed to and fro by every mood and wind and wave. I want to, I'm going to tell you myself talk. <laughs> Welcome to my world. My self talk goes something like this Alan, you feel this way. Alan, I acknowledge that. <laughs> Alan, I don't deny that. But that's not the truest thing about you, Alan. Alan, that person has hurt you. You feel wounded. But Alan, that is not the truest thing about you. Now grab hold of what Christ has done in the cross, and I speak to my soul, and I say, Alan, the truest thing about you is not what has been done to you, but what has been done for you. Yeah. And I want to say there's healing in that. It's not a one-day quick fix, but God's grace, it's a means of grace, and His Spirit is poured out in those moments, little by little, His Word and His Spirit. The truest thing about you is not what you feel. The truest thing about you is not what you have done. The truest thing about you is not what has been done to you. The truest thing about you is what has been done for you. Let's orbit our very souls around that until that reality lands because heaven and earth will pass away and that reality will not pass away, beloved. We can train our souls to hope in God and to praise God. I found as I land that one of the most powerful ways of speaking to my soul is through the posture of my body. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters talks about how it's like the uncle demon talking to the nephew demon about how to trap a Christian. And one of the things that this demon says is, don't let the Christian realize that the posture of his body affects the posture of his soul. Don't let them into that secret. And our culture has, has demonically done that. It's like, well, if you're feeling downcast, fold your arms because you're keeping it real, buddy. Just keep it real. It's a lie. It's a lie. I can acknowledge that I'm feeling that, but honestly, if I'm feeling rebellious, the best thing I can do is kneel. If I'm feeling depressed and hopeless, one of the best things I can do is raise my hands. If I'm feeling angry and resentful at the people of God, the best thing I can do is run to the people of God. It's not faking it till you make it. It's saying there's a higher reality than how I'm feeling. If you got wounded in community, you're not going to get healed in isolation. You'll get healed back 
And I'm talking to leaders here. But boy, have people been wounded. Run back. And the psalm lands with incredibly refreshed soul. Deep calls to deep. The roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. By, na- by day, the Lord commands a steadfast love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I want you to see the progression here. He starts by panting for a stream, and he ends up plunged into a deep waterfall, a waterfall of God's steadfast love. He gets more than he bargains for. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more, this is not law, this progression. This is just saying, I just want to posture myself for the waterfall of God's grace. I want to empty myself that I might be filled again. And here's our hope. Here's our hope for a refreshed soul. You are not a deer. You are a sheep. And a sheep has a good shepherd who leads us to waters. We don't have to find the waters. The good shepherd will always lead a sheep to the water. That's our hope. And the good shepherd, on the way to the cross, where he would die like a lamb for the flock, on the way at the feast of the tabernacles, stood up, John 7, and said, If anyone is thirsty, let him drink of me. If anyone believes, it will be like springs of living water welling up to eternal life. The good shepherd saying, I'll never leave you thirsty. And John says, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit who would be given. The good shepherd leads us, leads us to streams of living water. And he says, if you're thirsty, drink. I will pour out my spirit. You deal with your soul, but it's in, in anticipation of a waterfall of God's grace. So come, so come, come to the waters and live.